This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me You're not gonna do nothing, you are not above me I bet you wish you was me, I know that I know What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Only Friends Podcast. As you can see, my reign has begun. You are the new switcher. I am the guy in mm-hmm. charge. Yep. Welcome, as always, to the team. Brian, the turtle, the tortoise, Landon Tice. The sidekick has mm-hmm. become the master. Uh, there is no more guapo here. I have now yep. taken over. Yeah, you have been. The entire you have taken show. over. I've taken mm-hmm. over the whole show, and I have no problems about muting the mics. Mm-hmm. You can that's mute them. That's good. That's right. Mics are muted. Mics are, mics are unmuted. You guys don't even know what goes I, on behind I feel the like scenes. we might regret giving you even more power. This, oh. this might be, this might be mm-hmm. bad. Hunt, you have no idea what you guys are in for. Welcome to the show, Matt. We appreciate Hello. you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Joking that you had a day off today. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely no no, no days off. Hashtag no days off. That's right. Mm-hmm. We're here. We are doing the damn thing. Uh, so today is going to be a strat chat kind of day. We're going to be mostly discussing uh, what we anticipate to be some trends here in the 2024 era of whatever the fuck we want to call this these days. I, guess, I, think it's, I think we're still in the solver era. We're not quite in the AI era yet, but we might be pretty soon. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am of the impression that uh, we have gone from solver era well let me rephrase we've gone from freestyle era to solver era all the way back to freestyling with a little solver twist yeah mm. we i feel like we're kind of i feel like that's kind of what's happening yeah it's it's like the it's not we're not quite in like the feel era i feel like going back a long way mm, it was like, like it, everybody era. was a feel player you know yeah i don't i feel like there was there was there was a zone where it was freestyling and it wasn't quite just field play. There was, there was some math, but it was, it was not solvers. You know, there was maybe like 2008 through 2014 or so. It was like the freestyle era. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely feel like we're coming into a bit of a new, a bit of new territory. Um, I think that people have a, a lot more access to, to solvers that can just kind of answer whatever question you want, really. You know, like these days, if you, if you want to solve a preflop scenario, if you want to solve any kind of post-flop spot there's there's going to be some kind of tool that can probably get you pretty close so um there is there is a lot of solver availability but there's a lot of room for experimentation once you know how to use them right yeah i mean the tortoise is uh is a solver connoisseur these days i am he is yeah 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 i mean i'm wizard approved <laughs> wizard, wizard sometimes doesn't, wizard doesn't necessarily play too much like the tortoise but it, i mean it does sometimes you never know every every now and again i yeah, mean so. now it feels sort of like the work ethic era a little bit you know you have all the, the answers so if you just now like, go play if you work hard enough to find them and know what the spots are for range bats or board sizes and textures you can get pretty good pretty fast every Where, era is the work ethic era my friend not <clears> really <throat> though i think there's a lot of talent back in the day there was a lot less answers, right? The less yeah. answers you have, the more talent you need. Because you're just kind of creating shit. Yeah, not, I, not I, to be a dick about it, but you were like 12 <laughs> at that time. Matt's pissed about it. <laughs> <laughs> he used to win more back then. But he worked hard. 
Did you? Uh, it was a different kind of work. It was it was a carry, there you go. Yeah, it was a carry your lunch pail and and go collect your check kind of kind of job. You it's know not I mean? the same as having an actual answer. Like you didn't have an answer key. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that like when we were in the process of getting better, so to speak, it was a lot of hours just grinding hand histories and talking with people mm -hmm. that you had some level of respect for. And it was a lot of like Matt was saying, uh, kind of being innovative, right? So whenever you felt like you stumbled on something, it'd be like, Hey guys, listen to this. Okay. So I limped from the hijack, <laughs> but I had aces and 12 blinds and mm -hmm. we fucked them good. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of like work your way backwards where you dissect this spot of like, okay, well, if this kind of worked in this capacity with that good of a hand, how far can we push it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like things you, were trendy back then. There was like tr different trends that would happen, right? Like yeah. it would be like, oh, I'm going to limp under the gun with aces. Like that became a thing. Yeah. And then people mm -hmm. would do it. And then people would start limping under the gun without aces. And people would think you had aces. Yeah. Right. So, and then it was just like the counter to whatever the trend was would be a thing. You know, can, you can you imagine being like the yeah. first guy to trap aces under the gun? It's like the, the caveman discovering fire. Yeah, right. Like, oh, yeah. I limped with aces and the someone just raised. Yeah, they never saw it coming. Right, their mind was blown when, right. they, when you turned over the aces. It was more abstract mm -hmm. theory crafting back in the day. Now you actually have the theory that crafted for yeah, you. Very much right. That's a good yeah, way of yeah. putting it, I think. Um, but the, the talent back then was being able to theoretically abstract. Yeah. And also just not being afraid yeah. to just blast off. Yeah, because, it was very exploitable. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was. It was finding what the player pool was doing and then exploiting it, right? And it was just like, I mean, like, you still do that today, but but like with more structure. Well, today you know that flops in some spots are range bets for quarter pots. So you just do it and you don't really mm -hmm. try to exploit on that street. Right. Where if you didn't know that something was a range bet back then, you think, oh, mm -hmm. this is really good for me. I'm just going to bet everything I have for very small. Right. Yeah, and it's actually <laughs> correct. There wasn't mm -hmm. even a concept of range betting. Like it, it, I mean, you, you would do it, but you wouldn't say I'm range betting this flop because the concept of range didn't exist at a certain mm -hmm. point. You know, like we didn't even start talking about ranges until like, 2010 ish yeah, yeah like probably. until that cole south book mm -hmm. came let out. there be range yeah exactly what a book, <laughs> what a book. Mm -hmm. yeah i i think all of that is uh is really spot on um i like the notion of theory crafting i, I like that concept um because it really does speak to like what the good players were doing pre-solver era like we obviously weren't calculating ev we we knew that the measurement existed but we also knew that outside of all in moments you really couldn't uh, grasp the math around it. We we couldn't we couldn't plan ahead. We couldn't see ahead in the in the game tree enough. But we had a feel for it. Like you know, you had a, a conceptual understanding of like what equity was, how to realize it, how to be how to deny it, and the types of mechanics that would go hand in hand with that. I guess uh, there's <laughs> there was a moment. This must have been like 2004, like maybe a year and a half into us playing for a significant period of time. And I was on Lamana's back porch playing mm. uh, the 30 rebuy on party, which was a really popular tournament. And I remember this very well, actually. Yeah, it was, it was a tournament that I'd won uh, a couple of times and I was running deep in it. And at the time, you know, the popular study materials were specifically super system. Like that was the Bible. Uh, we all abided by it in some sort of capacity, or at least we read it. And then I think right around that time... Um, I think it was Skolansky and Melmuth, but it might have been somebody else, released a book called Small Stakes Tournaments. And it kind of began to speak to position and how, you know, it's speaking in general terms. You have to play 
tighter from under the gun than you would on the button and it would list example type of hands uh but never really like crafted ranges or anything along those lines and i just remember thinking like reading all of this and it's like well if this is the information that everybody has doesn't it kind of make sense to poke holes in it by just pretending to do what everybody else is doing mm-hmm. but do the opposite and i looked at lamana and i was like uh i was raising under the gun with like dog shit mm-hmm. like queen eight off because someone <laughs> told me it was the computer hand or something along those lines and uh, i was just Which isn't like, even right like <laughs> right yeah it's queen seven off or whatever it's not even correct. Uh, so i'm like just raising some dog shit where i just want to steal the blinds and like you know we're still three axing back then and i'm i'm running deep and like i'm just doing this over and over and over again i'm the most active player at the table by a long shot and laman's like what are you doing and i looked at him and i go under the guns the new button yeah you know, this is this is where we steal from now. Like, mm-hmm. why try to steal from the button where they know you're stealing when instead you can just steal from under the gun where they think you have aces? Yeah, right. This and, is the point. It just worked. Now it we've really evolved did. to the point where we don't even talk about stealing anymore. We right. just talk about like how wide is your opening range? Right. You know? right. We, we understand that stealing, just raising to win the blinds, is not really a thing. You know, <laughs> only only in polar spots is it a thing. Go on. Well, like, you know, sometimes at final tables, you're going to want to have like a small RFI range that's mm. aces or not aces. Mm, the so aces, then the, not aces game. Right. Mm. So oh, instead yeah. of limping the aces, not aces, you raise with aces or not right. aces. Good segue. We yeah. can segue that into one of the things that uh, I think is probably going to be a pretty prevalent trend in tournaments is people recognizing where they're supposed to have a lot of sort of, I guess you could just call them weird non-all-in ranges off short stacks, whether it's three betting or raising or whatever else in that like Landon says, there are plenty of spots, particularly when there's a lot of ICM, that people now can kind of see, partly because of GTO Wizards archives and because people have more ICM sims that they're running and things like that. There's lots of spots where you're supposed to have a min-raising range off eight big blinds or a non-all-in three-bet range off 14 bigs or something like that. You know, mm. And I definitely feel like we're going to see a lot more of that in tournaments going forward. Partly because it's just correct and people understand that it's correct, but also because the information that it's correct is so much more available now. Yeah, clicking's become a lot more trendy. Yeah. Like just someone off 15 bigs, like you min raise the two, they go 4.2. Did anybody watch the uh, PokeGo Championship last night? Because there, there was a fun click in that, in that spot. There was, uh, uh, I gave up with the drunk guy. Oh, I, yeah. I see. I didn't even see any of that. I tuned in afterwards. Mm. I, it was like right on, it was final table. So there was seven handed, six paid. And uh, Sam Blaskowitz opens off of like 19 bigs and he's the second shortest. I think Darren Elias had like 14 bigs. He has ace king suited. He, he min raises under the gun seven handed. And then uh, Smilkovich is, I think he's next to act and he literally min clicks it. So Laskowitz opens at 15K big blind. He opens to 30K. Smilkovich clicks it to 45K with jacks and he just you know, calls off and everything and Laskowitz loses the flip and busts. But it, it was the most extreme example of he knows that in that spot, he doesn't have to three bet any bigger to put pressure on the shorter stack. So even with his value range, he's literally just min clicking it back and recognizing that he's almost never going to get called and the, the response is going to be jam or fold. So it was a really interesting example of a really good player taking a line exactly like that, mm-hmm. even as a chip leader against a short stack. So Yeah, I think this is something that happened a lot in the wild, mm-hmm. pre-solvers. Like Chris Mormon? Chris Mormon, Chris Oliver was another... Uh, uh, what was his name? I think it was Steve Gross? Some, uh, someone like that? Someone... Je- not, not Jeff Gross. Uh, no, Steve, Steve Gross was... Um, 
God, what was his online name? He still I, plays on WSOP. I can't, yeah, I can't remember his online name. Jibaro? Jibaro, yes. I remember watching a video of his where he was he was talking about a spot where he three-bet folded 9-3 suited off 13 bigs. Mm. And I remember seeing that and being like, this guy's a madman. Like, what's going on? But this was 2012 or something, mm -hmm. and he got a fold. Like, it, you know, people didn't know what you're supposed to do. Yeah, so it was, it was wildly popular to click mm -hmm. around. Yeah. Um, Mormon was, like, notorious for it. Uh, Chris Oliver, he has that famous hand at the final table where I think he, like, seven bet nine do suited or something along yep. those lines. Uh, something ridiculous. But the difference between then and now, and it's a very stark difference because it's, the, it's basically the difference between an idea and precision mm -hmm. right so back then it was just an idea that clicking was was available and the issue was that because it wasn't well formulated and you actually couldn't really measure the ev of what you were doing you were just feeling your way through it right. and you knew that it was applying some level of pressure the problem was is that it allowed for better defenses i believe because the 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 idea of what it is is obviously exploiting people who are in ICM hell or have some level of pressure due to stack stack sizes right but the response then became like well if that's the exploit that they're taking advantage of is that my stack is vulnerable and I, re I realize that they're reckless in the way that they're doing this then it's no longer a benefit to them mm -hmm. because they're just so goddamn wide <clears throat> that I can just find the next raise or the jam or whatever and the times that I bust like it feels really bad and we're going to talk about it on a forum somewhere but, you know, that's a risk I'm willing to take kind of thing. Now, people are so precise that it's like, in that situation that you just described with uh, Smilovich, it's like he's going to have a relatively nutted range and then maybe just like a sprinkle of dust, right? Yeah, he's just going to have basically a lot of blocker bluffs, like ASEX blocker bluffs, and then whatever is his value range for, uh, for calling it off, you know? And he doesn't need to go any bigger than a clickback, so he did. Right, right. So now it's one of those scenarios where the risk is real for the original opener. He doesn't have the ability to just be like, okay, but it's Mormon. I'm all in mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, you know, like basically just play the game of all of my value hands go up a little bit than they would otherwise in theory. And all my marginal hands also increase their value a little bit to, to now be jams mm -hmm. than it would technically in theory because this person's way too wide. But now like way too wide doesn't really exist right. in a lot of these nodes. And everybody's so precise because they're able to do so much work pre-flop. There's so many ways to, to uh, calculate all of this stuff and, and kind of come to a conclusion of what you think is good. And that makes it really difficult to create counter strategies. Mm -hmm. Like when the counter strategy is just trying to break even, uh, it doesn't really exactly feel good. So I guess like uh, this can kind of segue, not, not to get off at this point, but I think like painting some broad strokes and then maybe digging a little deeper would be good. This segue a little bit into a conversation that Lane and I were having the other day where um, if 2023 wasn't the year of ICM, 2024 certainly will be. Yeah. But I would actually predict that 2024 is the year that ICM might die. Uh, and I think that this is obviously shocker, Newsflash, Berkey's contrarian. Uh, <laughs> contrarian take of the day. Right, and I'm not exactly a tournament guy, but uh, the point that I was trying to make to Landon was that we kind of don't have a lot of confidence in the ICM model. Mm -hmm. We've just all accepted that it's the only thing we have. We know it's not perfect. Right, right. We will, or we, we like openly know that it's not perfect, but we also kind of like don't have an alternative to mm -hmm. utilize. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting about that is to start with a very imperfect model and then dive down the rabbit holes to the point of 
uh, you know, like extreme precision. So I would I would say like 2023 was the year of ICM in the sense that uh, we've seen more tools come out that allow you to measure ICM for different phases of the event. We've seen more strategy crafted around the ICM uh, implications of each stage of the field, uh, how much it means. We're measuring things in literal dollars won and lost mm -hmm. uh, based off of decisions made. And I think we totally lost sight of the fact that we don't necessarily even believe in this model. You know, <laughs> like uh, people are getting to become ICM ex experts, like mm -hmm. the best in the world at this model that may ultimately be flawed. Yeah. Which yeah, I find to be quite fascinating for uh, a group of of players that we see that are so high level. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that especially when you look at the the fact that there are... I With all the people that I talk to, particularly some of the guys that I work with at Wizard and things like that, there are, there are people out there who are working on trying to build better models. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't that we don't know how to build a better model. The problem is every better model that we can hypothetically build is super impractical for any kind of actual calculation you could ever do right. without taking a massive amount of computing power. That was true of ICM though, up until about a year and a right. half ago. So this is what I mean. So I think that it's, it's always been seen as relatively inevitable that we would eventually come up with something that would replace ICM. Yeah. The question is when, and at what point are we, like, how far is it going to go? Is it going to be able to cater to our assumptions about what our win rate is? Is it going to be able to cater to things like implied uh, future gains of chips because we build a big stack and we get more good spots later on because we have a big stack, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All these things, there are various models that you can hypothesize that could take into account all this stuff, but... ICM is already so ridiculously complicated, especially for larger fields, that it's the question is the practicality of how do we get one of these models to be something we can actually use. Right. So at this point, I still think a lot of the best players are out there incorporating ICM into an overall view of the game that does encompass these other factors. But these other factors are still mathematical unknowns. You know, right. there's still there's still things where we understand that we do have an edge, but we just simply don't know how much it accounts for mathematically and how that affects what our actual ranges should be. So I definitely agree that there's a lot of room for improving beyond ICM. And I think that a lot of the time people get stuck using ICM simply because they like to have that safety net. You know, we, we like to operate with some sort of boundaries, some sort of reassurance of, well, I'm like, this might be a mistake, but it's only a mistake by this much. Right. right? We like, like to strategic to framework. Things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it does, it does become a bit comfortable at times. And, and, uh, I think there are there are definitely going to be more models that come out at some point. Someone will invent invent the uh, the the breakthrough model that will replace ICM, or mm -hmm. they will invent a model that incorporates ICM into something bigger. Right. But we're not at that stage yet. Um, and hopefully, obviously, as someone who plays a lot of tournaments and makes a lot of tournament content, I I hope to be you know one of the early discoverers of this this format, whatever it is. I'm obviously not a mathematician. But I, I try to keep up to date such that if somebody does find a method that's out there that's better than ICM, I want to know about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So hopefully down the line uh, that'll happen. But right now we're kind of stuck with what we have, you know? Well, like when it comes to the framework of ICM as a whole, the thing that we've all sort of come to realize is that chips mean more or less 
to cert oh my oh sure mm -hmm. Ch like chips mean more or less to certain positions in the tournament mm -hmm. over others so right. if people are RFIing too wide as chip leaders like they're supposed to, mm -hmm. there's ways to attack that range. When people are too tight, there's ways to attack that range. Or some spots you don't even get to play as many hands as you can from a big blind because the, the stack that does open, chips are so valuable in the first place and mm -hmm. not incentivized to. Right. So having those sort of mechanics in the back of your mind while playing and then still exploring and looking for not even different models, but just kind of living or dying by the sword if you think that ICM is or isn't real, trying to win flips is or is more important because of future game, mm -hmm. like the whole idea now with future game and near future game cope, if yeah. you will, where it's like, if I win this flip, I can win the tournament. Yeah. But if you take the flip, you're actually losing money in the mm -hmm. model. Right. Is the back and forth that people have to go through, not just in high rollers, but just in these big field tournaments too, mm -hmm. where these spots don't come up in your life every every so often. Right. But when you run in a computer, it plays it every day. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. I, I'm hoping that eventually what we'll have is we'll have the ability to kind of artificially simulate a tournament in some way where the, the calculator that we're using can, not only can it run the ICM for the spot that we're currently in, but a bit like... Uh, Holden Resources Calculator's FGS function, it can run like, it can just play out the rest of the tournament, right? And it can just sort of see what happens on every future hand based on what we do now. So something HRC can do that's pretty new, I haven't really played with it yet, but uh, a friend of mine uh, has, mm -hmm. they have an edge calculator into it now. Mm. So you can give your assumed edge in a tournament and then it'll give you different ranges off that, of the How do they, how say, how do they quantify be, it? Yeah. I think it's just you could just like five percent edge. That would be amazing, right? Like you plug in everybody's win rate mm -hmm. in the tournament and then it just says, Okay, well if you have this win win rate, you play this range. If you but that's win rate, that's that's that kind of what I'm asking. Right. What how how are you quantifying win rate? Is this ROI? I think it's just by ROI, yeah. Like percent edge of like per, like percent mm -hmm. invet like amount of art like return but that's the hard part is actually knowing what the correct from win from rate what is i know is it's you, what you this it's it goes hand in hand with their frequency locking function where instead of actually locking somebody's exact range for a certain node you can just say i don't know exactly what hands they're three betting but i want to say that they're three betting five percent of the time right mm -hmm. and it, it will then solve for that frequency with the the best possible range that it can and I haven't experimented with it in the way that Landon's saying yet, but I believe what you can do is you can specify a certain amount of edge where essentially at that node of the tree, it will assume you get an additional X percent EV based on what the EV is at that node. So it's going to assume that you you win 5% more EV than what you're supposed to at that node right. or 10% more EV. Right. I think so that's basically how it's, it's done. It's like... Uh, it's more of a realization function. Yeah, basically, right? I think. Um, but I'm not even. I'm not 100 sure on how it works, and I, I definitely, I'm not sure if it can account for future hands because I'm pretty sure that the, um, the future game simulation function on on HRC as it stands, you can simulate the current hand, but all future hands it assu it assumes that they are push fold, right. so it, it can't assume anything other than a very simplified strategy for the future hands after this current one. So it is a bit of a flawed model, but it becomes less flawed when you're looking at very short stack spots. So if you're looking at just like a, a push fold sort of sit and go final table, FGS is quite effective because most hands are going to play out pretty, pretty close to push fold, but it becomes less effective if you want to try to account for actual gameplay over future hands or especially if you want to account for you actually having a skill advantage in those future hands. That's what we don't yet have from what I know.
Yeah, I think uh, to like paint a broader picture for the for the audience, I think it's worth like revisiting the evolution of all this. Uh, you know, we could date back to our first MTT Academy four and a half, almost five years ago, maybe. Man, wow, that's a long time. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and even then, in the most rudimentary form of uh, education that we were offering, we acknowledge that ICM exists from the first card off the rip. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was something that wasn't like commonly believed to be true or commonly spoken about amongst uh, MTT players or or the like. So we're dating back to like 20, 2018, 2017, maybe somewhere in that like. Uh, Dude, I'm area. gonna blow my own horn a little bit here. I wrote an article about that in like 2013 or 2014 for Tournament Poker Edge, yeah. where I basically, I wrote an article called ICM is not just for final tables. Mm. And we didn't have the technology at that point to calculate what it was early on, but it was, it was fairly obvious to me a long time ago that it existed at least in a theoretical sense from the beginning. Mm -hmm because it's all about the marginal value of chips. You know? Right. So that, you know, the idea has been out there for a while. Right, so that's that's kind of like what I want to revisit. Uh, we, we understood, and we have understood for a long period of time that there is diminishing returns to chips accumulated, but that also kind of contradicts the fact that you have to win every single chip in play in order to mm -hmm. make first place, which is obviously worth, worth less than the entire prize pool. So all of this leads itself down a path of... Uh, creating a model like ICM and, you know, evolving it to the point where we are now, where now we can measure ICM for like half the field, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the questions that I have that spurn off of that are, if we recognize that ICM does better than chip EV, and I think that if I'm not mistaken, based off of like what we've spoken about at the Academy and stuff, I believe that there have been simulations that have run out from certain points of the field where you let the field play chip EV and you let the field play ICM mm -hmm. and then you let the field play a mix. Yeah. And both the ICM model and the mix model all outperforms people playing yeah, that chip was, EV. Tom Boss did a video for that on, uh, on the, the Wizard YouTube mm -hmm. channel. He, he did a whole simulation with a custom built like piece of software. Him and the, the guy who runs HRC did this together and okay. they, they tested ICM against chip EV and ICM crushed chip ev now chip ev would win the tournament more often right yeah, exactly but when yeah. it came to real roi mm -hmm. then, then the icm yeah, model the chip ev was winning right. the tournament much more often than the icm model but it was mm -hmm. losing money right and the icm model was winning at like a even when every, with everybody playing optimally it was winning at like a three percent roi mm -hmm. and all the different kinds of icm like you start at icm or you start icm after half of the field is gone or whatever all of those outperformed playing Chip EV up to the final table. Right. What, what they didn't include in the test is playing Chip EV all the way through, including at the final table. Mm. But Oh, even, that's interesting. Yeah, so I, they, they didn't include one that still played Chip EV even at the final table. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, uh, the Chip EV player, like I think the, the Chip EV lost at like 13% negative ROI or something like that. Like they got crushed and all the different ICM styles whatever one you you want uh made between a you know some some kind of positive roi between right. zero and three percent or so something like that yeah so i guess uh where that arrives me at is uh we understand that there is something that does better than chip ev mm -hmm. right but we have really no knowledge of anything that cannot perform icm and we also acknowledge that icm is incredibly flawed so my question then becomes uh, it's clear what the dangers are in just following a chip EV model. Mm -hmm. You're you're clearly giving something up to the people that are playing ICM, and I would contest that's why open field events have even gotten a lot tougher as of mm -hmm. late. 
somebody who used to be able to play cash games for a living and then transition into tournaments recreationally, you would not only do fine, but there was a period of time where you would do better. Yeah. Right. You were just more accustomed to post-flop scenarios and people being so risk averse would try to see three either through limps or through too much calling pre whatever the case may be. And you just got to realize a lot of edge that maybe the field didn't necessarily have. We've come full circle though. Now where people who are studying ICM full time are absolutely zapping a lot of the win rate out of the field. Now, my question becomes whenever that becomes commonplace and that's the new, that's the new bar that is set as far as like tournament strategy goes, who then starts crushing the field by developing the new model? And like, mm. what does that model particularly look like? So where ultimately the question I'm asking is like, where is ICM most vulnerable? Uh, that's a really good question. I, my instinct about what the answer is there is I think that Landon sounds like he wants to say something. Like my first initial, my initial guess would be the drop off between getting them in cash and then leading up to the final table. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think it'd probably be somewhere around there. Yeah, like you because think there's a lot of edge to be going. Gained. I think there's, I think that the way that people see these spots are very differently. Where some people say, okay, you cash the tournament, ICM is important, you're deep in the tournament, and now you have the chance to win. Versus these page, especially in bigger fields, like these pay jumps are so small, you need to try to mm. get to spots where pay jumps are actually meaningful. Mm -hmm. Versus just kind of trying to preserve and sneak and then play like the gym game. Basically, what you're arguing is that. Uh, when you are when you're half the field left and there's no actual money being exchanged you're still under significant icm pressure because zero dollars and a min cash is very significant mm -hmm. whereas a min cash to a min cash plus one percent is rather insignificant and the risk premiums so. to go down right after the bubble the right? risk premium goes down after the bubble but at the same time, you're still in the tournament deep where you have the chance to win, yeah. where mm -hmm. if you kind of play reckless abandon, if you will, it's possible that you lose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my, I think my um, assumption or estimation about where there might be some edges, I feel like if you look at bounty tournaments or progressive bounties in particular, people already understand that gaining chips early on has implied value because it allows you to cover other people and potentially win bounties. Right. I think that what we're going to eventually discover is that ICM means, or, or covering people in future hands in ICM, means that you are, your win rate is going to go up when you cover someone else, simply because they are going, if they slightly overfold, or if ICM dictates that they have to slightly overfold to you because you cover them, you are going to actually manifest a higher win rate. So my expectation might be that chips won earlier on in a tournament probably have more value than we think they do mm -hmm. because if the implication of doubling up on the first hand is that you're going to cover everybody in every hand for quite a while you're actually going to manifest a higher win rate which is going to in turn mean you gain more chips and you cover more people and so on and so forth yeah kind of like pretty sick final table thing that is starting to happen way more in uh like the super high rollers or mm -hmm. the pgt 10k pluses is when chip leader plays a spot versus somebody else in the tournament, instead of putting them all in on the end for the on the mm -hmm. river, they leave them with two big blinds. Yeah. Because now you have that much ICM pressure to exert against everybody else in the field mm -hmm. that they need to wait for this yeah, guy to bust. Yeah, you don't want them to bust. Right? But if you're not first, you want to put the person all in so the ICM pressure gets reduced. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean that that's a that's a cool concept, and I think that you could certainly even if you just started looking at final tables, if you looked at you know the impact of being the chip leader, um, from what I know 
from the information that I have seen or from information that is available, ICM, it's pretty much accepted that ICM undervalues having the chip lead in mm -hmm. the sense that the chip leader will generally gain more EV at the final table than what ICM suggests they should. So they will generally outperform their ICM expectation. Right, because sample. because the model is only measuring for that one singular hand. So right. the pressure is only exacerbated for one hand, where in reality, that chip stack is able to exude that pressure for the duration of them holding the e chip lead. Exactly, yeah. yeah. This is kind of the different conversation between the like playing ICM hand for hand mm -hmm. versus playing an ICM strategy with future game involved, yeah. where... In an ICM model, you would play an open rip for 30 bigs mm -hmm. in a spot where maybe with future game and the tournament's still going on, instead of playing a jam in that spot, you just RFI. Mm -hmm. Because if they do end up them being small blind or big blind, having a hand that can combat you from an RFI, instead of getting called and losing chip lead, you still preserve it and can still try to right. maximize your risk reward so for the RFI. There's, there's a value in simply preserving the chip lead. This is something yeah. that Ali did very, very well in poker go tournaments mm -hmm. where he's call it like look back I've looked back at tournaments from three years ago, like he played just as well as people mm -hmm. play now, if not better. And he knows that in some spots he has open jams for 30. Mm -hmm. But instead he knew that people didn't play well enough, he would just RFI and that would garner him like garner more top three, top two finishes mm -hmm. because instead of risking it all in a spot, he just went for the RFI and then if someone played back, he would fold. Yeah, that's interesting. I also think that it works a little bit in the inverse as well, where if you're a middle stack, people are undervaluing the significance of doubling up into a dominant position. So like the ability to double from average stack to the chip lead has implied value to it that people don't account for because even if you're risking busting at the same time, the increase in your EV that comes from gaining the chip lead, particularly if you have like a really good spot where the current chip leader is a fish who's on your right. And when you double up, you're going to double into the chip lead with position on the fish who also has a lot of chips. Like that can be really, really powerful to the point where just flipping for it, even when you bust in ninth, when you lose could actually be really good. Yeah, and I mean, we saw this in the last chance with uh, the ace-king off call. The, the Chrissy goes like almost all in for almost her entire stack. Ace-king off calls. Mm. Uh, Matrosian rejams ace-jack suited. Mm. And then bro behind it, ace-king off, and then folded because in ICM he should fold here because he's risking too mm. much. Where in reality, like maybe the future game aspect is he's too wide. You can win this and then double into the chip lead, and now you have the dominant position for the rest of the yeah. tournament. And sure, you're risking a lot, but at the same time, this could be the spot that lets you win right. the tournament more. And you also don't have to deal with Arter on your direct left with the chip lead, which has a massive impact on your ROI because he's probably the best player at the table or one of them. You know? Yeah, it's 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 always this back and forth. Like the more you get, the more studied you get at ICM and looking at models, you realize like, oh, ace king off here is definitely a fold because mm -hmm. you're risking the risk reward is too high. But then looking at it from the pragmatic standpoint, win this flip, win the tournament. Mm -hmm. There's arguments yeah, to be said that that right. might just be the correct answer over what the model has to say. Yeah, I think future game is Tax like still well, understanding future game is 
kind of part of the game beyond Starting the game. Starting the hand in, in with tournaments. about 20 like it's, bigs. It's one of the areas where if two players who have identical ICM skill sets or identical chip EV skill sets putting the pressure play on in tournaments over a larger sample, it is possible for one player to be better be than the other good. at understanding future game. He makes the call. It's tough Here we go. because you never really know if using future game as the actual answer or as a coping mechanism. Yeah, it's hard to prove, you know. Where you're saying, like, oh, if I, if I get it all in here and he and I, he hopefully has two other cards when we flip and I win, <laughs> yeah. now I can win the tournament versus just knowing that the spot might just be a torch we'll because of the spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we yeah. might, I mean, we might be like, um, this might all be cope, as you as you youngins tend to say, uh, in that we, we, might, we might be just making shit up here and it, it, if we were to run a sample, it might be that the guy who thinks he's really good at future game actually has exactly the same results as the other guy mm -hmm. over a large sample. There's like a fine line between future game and ICM suicide. Yeah, right? there, there yeah. is. But it, it equally, though, it, it might just be that all the things we think are true about future game mm -hmm. actually are just not significant in comparison just the value of, of ICM and, and chip EV skill sets in the first yeah. place. Right. So, right? It's, but it's hard yeah. to quantify. That's what right? I mean. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, we, yeah. We, might, we might discover that future game is incredibly valuable. We right. might discover that it's totally meaningless. That might be like the new model that maybe it, yeah, could, it could replace be. ICM or, or go alongside ICM. It, it could be. It mm -hmm. could be. But we, uh, we will have to wait to see when someone can... Yet. Someone can come up with some kind of quantum computer solver that can uh, that can do all this crap. So similar to what you guys are talking about, did you happen to see the the hand where Ike bubbled this uh, Poker Go Master or Poker Go uh, Invitational yesterday? Is it the King Queen he calls off? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna roll the clip real quick for the audience sake, uh, and then we can kind of discuss. Oh yeah, this because of the bubble. You are ahead. I thought my chances were pretty good of being ahead. Started a little too late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, so it was just a jam by Stern. Yeah. Okay, now we reveal. Quite close, 60-40. I don't know why we don't hear it. Oh. And Stern says he is very live, 645k in this spot. This is why spot. we need How many time mags did I use? Two. I used two and I already gave you one, so it's right now. We're all square on time banks. The PGT player of the year all in and at risk. Seven oh. deuce deuce with two spades. Okay. Haxton the best one, hand one, at the one, moment, but Stern the favorite. Du and Nico were both beide, I come back to Jameson. And a spade wow. on the turn, and that'll just do it right there for Isaac Haxton, the PGT player of the year, out in a all right, so um, I found this interesting because, uh, you know, you guys were kind of just hashing out like areas where, uh, for instance, Landon was saying that, uh, you know, this ace-king spot where it goes like all in less a chip, re or call, and then rejam for piles in a situation where you have the feeling that Artur is too wide. Uh, that's a very specific subset of it but in this particular one we have a blind versus blind scenario where ike is not last in chips i believe darren elias has about half of his stack um yeah, yeah ike was third last third to chips, last think, right yeah. and he has about 20 big blinds 22 big blinds yeah with eight left right and faces a blind versus blind uh all in first from a stack that's double his size now uh in the commentary there you know <laughs> sturm says uh, do you have a pair? And Ike says, no. And he goes, I'm very live then. And mm -hmm. Ike goes, I don't have an ace either. Yeah. And he goes, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're ahead. And Ike kind of goes, well, I was pretty sure I was ahead. Yeah. And I think that this kind of really speaks to the the difficulty with ICM versus Chip EV. So in this particular scenario, King Queen rates to be a very good hand, especially 
when the incentives of the ICM model are fuck you, you can't call without mm-hmm. the nuts. Right. Mm-hmm. So how much of this is uh, Ike abiding uh, abiding by like what is just good ICM? versus him kind of like not caring that much about icm it's a free world where all the money's up top and he's basically saying like look king queen rates to be the best hand here a really high frequency i'm just going to yellow it off and hope variance is on my side my feeling about what was going on there was ike was spending that time in the tank trying to figure out how high is my risk premium here what is my actual equity against the jamming range mm-hmm. and is it high enough to outweigh that risk premium because i think he knows he's 55 maybe 60 percent but he's trying to figure out uh you know how much dominated king x and queen x is in the jamming range and then uh, simply is his risk premium so high that he has to fold even with 60 percent equity and then q future game right win this spot win the tournament where Mm -hmm. first place is half of the prize pool yeah so now there's this in between that icm is important and sure the bubble between zero and 40k is what it is but with eight left and the implications of the potentially doubling up and winning the tournament. Uh, and even in ICM model, I'm pretty sure this hand would still call. So it's like in ICM, I think this calls. In future game, I think this calls and is mm-hmm. good for me. And if it doesn't go well, I'm going to bubble and that sucks. But that's the game. But yeah. you would always think like the the more top heavy it is, then you th- you shift more towards future game than ICM. That's probably true. Probably. In some regards, we're like, you just... In some like you just have to win tournaments like a lot, yeah, you know. Like right. a lot of the prize, I mean, a lot of the money isn't winning. All and your ROI is winning some tournaments. Like that's where you. Really I, the way I would it. put it is that I th- I think that the top heaviness of the payout payouts influences future game less than the makeup of the remaining field. So if the remaining field is a bunch of crushes, mm-hmm. you want to focus much more on how do I win chips now. If the remaining field contains one or two weaker players. You want to focus on, I expect my edge in future hands to be bigger. Therefore, I'm going to pass something up. Yeah. And what, what's interesting about that is I think that it makes, I actually think ICM-wise, it's possible that Sturm's jam is not particularly great because I don't know if he has as much ICM leverage over Haxton as he maybe thinks. But mm-hmm. it's also worth noting that busting Ike specifically is really valuable for Sturm, because Ike is on his left. Yeah. There's eight left. And if you mm-hmm. get rid of probably the best player remaining in a field where there's at least one recreational player, Arden Cho, still in the field, that's a big boost to Sturm's EV, especially right. given that he takes pretty much the chip lead when he wins that pot. Also, Q, ICM heuristics of trying to realize your equity when you have the small suited hands, yeah. not trying to play blind versus blind out of position against Ike, where yeah. maybe the spot's not worth that much, or he's supposed to have a limp, and mm-hmm. you're supposed to jam a little higher, like 6-7 or whatever. Yeah. But in this instance, being able to just run out the EV is also not going to be the worst. Yeah, thing I mean, it's you. definitely not losing to jam there, right? Like it's it it might be losing. Uh, it might be losing. No, sorry, it might be winning a little bit less than just playing like, like three xing or limping or something. But it's probably very unlikely to be losing. So, is this something that you believe uh, is worth us taking a quick glance at? Yeah, we can do that. Let's take a look. Okay. Uh, so I found a sim. It's close it's a final table average stack 25 blinds which i think is pretty close uh the stack distribution is reasonable i'm not sure what the chip leader had um but we know that Sturm had like 38 ish blinds somewhere in that neighborhood so he's probably like second or third in chips uh and we have him in the small blind here with 32 we have the big blind uh which represents ike here um i think you should use a bubble sim instead 
because this they were at the fund they were eight left but there was six paid oh okay so they weren't in the money yet i see that, okay um that's probably going to affect this quite a bit i would think all right well then let's check let's try that to... near near bubble near bubble near bubble and then try to if you if you click on where it says SB, you can filter by the small blind stack size. Okay. Also change or, it to two hundred players over a thousand. Yeah. Yep. A lot of lot of lot of filters. This is okay. this is wizard being displayed at its finest right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's well, look actually, for if you filter by big blind stack size, that might be better. Maybe something can, like this forty one seventeen. Yeah, it's probably close enough. Yeah, seventeen or for the next one forty three twenty one. That's thirty one. Oh. Oh, oh here we go. Okay. Forty-six twenty-two. Okay, that's good. That's, yeah, that's, that's actually probably, pretty accurate. Probably perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a much higher average big blind or sorry average stack, but because it's a bubble instead of final table, that probably doesn't matter. Too <laughs> yeah, much. that's probably okay. Yeah, okay. this is probably what I would have expected approximately. Yeah. So uh, you can see that um, Sturm is basically ripping a lot of his range, and he's yeah. raising the Four rest. Four threes in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's raising the rest. Basically, he jams things that you know um, want to realize their equity a lot. Uh, or just have like straight high card potential like the mm -hmm. king four suiteds etc and then he does a lot of raising with hands that are just way too good like king queens that want to call off etc yeah. etc raising raising polo a lot of his pairs mm -hmm. yeah then trash. and then you know the trash that's just going to yeah. fold and it's a lot of the deuce x range that that gives up so jam seems quite reasonable here uh let's see where the king queen falls um so yeah it's a pure call yeah, uh, even even in ICM, so no shock that Ike is playing he very found machine esque. <laughs> um, I can't remember the last time I saw Ike make a play where I was like, I don't know about that. Yeah, like, I feel like Ike just does not make mistakes these days. And the yeah. King Jack is a fold, so it's like King Queen pure King Jack. Uh, well, you can see he doesn't really have any mixed decisions here. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so the, it's, but but it's funny because he he went into the tank because he is right on that edge, right, right. Yeah. So it's yeah. just King, like, but he did eventually arrive. At King the right Queen decision. is the exact hand you're supposed to tank and then call, right? Like, and that's exactly <laughs> what he did. Like exactly. he really right. is the machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of this, Matt. What sure. what exactly does the bubble factor mean? So uh, bubble factor and risk premium they basically refer to the the relationship between the upside of winning and the downside of losing. Okay. So. If the bubble factor is 1.0, it means winning and losing are exactly as valuable as each other, mm -hmm. which would mean chip EV. If the bubble factor was 2.0, it would mean that the downside or the decrease in your, your ICM EV when you lose is twice as big as the upside when you win. Okay, so this is measured in... Oh, okay, it's in yeah, both. the bubble factor is below. It's, it's the whole and the number. the percentage... Yeah, so that's what I was getting okay, to. Okay, sorry, my R fault. Risk premium is the difference... Or the amount of additional equity you need in order to overcome the bubble factor. Okay. So in in a situation where your risk premium is 10%, it means you need 10% additional equity to stack off in order to overcome the bubble factor, in order to to uh, actually have it be a call, for example. Mm -hmm. So if you normally would need 47%, you now need 57%, um, and so on and so forth. So right. risk premiums are a good measurement of how much extra equity you need or how, how much additional incentive there is for you to fold in a given spot. You know, Matt goes over this in great detail in the Tournament Academy I do. coming up good uh, plug. in May. Very good just, plug. Just saying. Nice, nice job, Tori. Yeah. <laughs> way, way to get him. He does. It's, it's really great. Mm -hmm. um, so just really quickly looking at this chart then, we'd be looking at the small blind jam uh, and the big blind call off. So we would go to yeah. the big blind column, small blind jam. So he needs about a half a percent, or sorry, uh, 5%. No, that's that's the wrong way around. Big blind, you, you get onto the bottom on the left. Oh. The big blinds 
risk premium against the small blind is 13.5%. Oh, it's right here. Okay. So yeah. th this is the this is the portion taking action and this is the, yeah. the column. Yeah. On, on the left is the player you're looking at and I see. The, it's versus the player on the top. Right, right. Okay. So um, actually Ike needs about 13.5% more equity than usual right, to call right. off. So normally he would need about 45 46% right. now he needs about 58 60% which okay. is why right. I said that he was mm -hmm. probably trying to think do I have like 60% ish I see him man fascinating mm -hmm. thing you yeah. nailed it without even looking at it too well, you know you've looked at these things a few I, times. I do the work <laughs> yeah I uh I admittedly don't look at this stuff I don't know it very well is it safe to say that you can I don't want to say shortcut ICM but is it safe to say that like focusing on risk premium is kind of the the way to unlock the ability to do this in real time, like I, having a fair I think estimation. It's, a, it's it's about as good of a method as exists. Yeah, I think just understanding how big your risk premium is in in each spot against each player, just really approximating it, just knowing that like it's almost never going to be bigger than twenty percent, but it's basically always going to exist in some form. Mm -hmm. If you can just have a sliding scale in your mind of like, oh, it's probably at like three percent right now, so it's not very high. Uh, you know, we're coming up to the bubble, so. I'm a middle stack, maybe it's like 12%. You know, if you just have a, a basic ability to approximate. Yeah, you're never going to be able you, to calculate it in real yeah, time. Yeah, you're never going to be able to calculate decimal. it. You, you cannot right. calculate it in real time, but you can guess relatively accurately, like mm -hmm. I just did. Like with you just did, right, like yeah. I, I kind of just was like, eh, it's a final table bubble kind of spot. Like, eh, maybe 60% is what he needs. And it was pretty close. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, now that we've exhaustively spoken about some trends that we may see uh, coming up in 2024 for MTTs, yeah, uh, let's talk cash a little bit. Yeah, let's get let's get in the old wheelhouse. Your yeah. wheelhouse. Yeah. Apparently, I'm the only one who still plays it. Go to the fucking win. What are you plays? talking about? I'm I'm tortoise grinding plays. cash every day. I'm out there. Let's ask Tortoise. Right. What, what do you expect to see in cash this That's year? That's right. What Let's do I have? Probably more from the blue hairs. Yeah, more. Still a lot of you know under three betting, under four betting. Mm -hmm. right? Low stakes cash really doesn't really change, does it? It doesn't. It really. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. It's it's been kind of static since like the last ten fifteen years. I mean, I've, obviously it's evolved a little bit, but like people are still doing the same things they've been doing over and over and over again. And I think it's because uh, the the field is filled with you know. A lot of recreational players who don't study and are just going to play like they've always played so if you're not studying if you're not looking at sims then your game is not going to evolve now yes there are some better players in these you know in in these small stakes making their way up and they're trying to get better and they're studying and they're going to be the ones that are going to advance their game and and you're going to see them play more optimally i guess but um i would say the vast field still is is playing you know hasn't evolved that much in the last you know decade or so mm -hmm. yeah i think that the reason for that specifically is um understanding like the 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 principles the driving force behind no limit hold'em and what guides your decisions mm -hmm. isn't intuitive so it takes some level of work to get to a point where you understand how to bluff catch. It, get, it takes some level of work for you to understand how to polarize and how to choose proper sizings, things of that nature. Um, but I also think that there's a big trickle-down effect. I think that it's monkey see, monkey do, and it always has been. So a lot of the stuff that you'll see presenting maybe in the high and mid-stakes games, the uncapped games, the deeper games, etc., they tend to work their way into the smaller games that you often frequent. And 
not only do I think that they're largely misapplied, but I also think that in a lot of instances, they're not even applicable, right? Um, the range comparisons between an uncapped high stakes game and a uh, capped small buy-in low stakes game, there should be almost no overlap. Like the, the, as <laughs> it's wild because I actually think that once you get into the private realm, uh, the comparisons between like one, two, no limit and 100, 200, no limit are actually very close. And it's kind of ironic because it's reasonable at the highest stakes because, you know, the game's being driven by a couple of recreational players that are there to splash and have fun, uh, much the similar to, to small stakes, but the game's very deep. So there's a lot of wiggle room and a lot of ability for people to kind of freestyle, make some errors, correct those errors later in the hand, uh, gain EV, lose EV, whatever. There's a a lot of exchange taking place. At the small stakes, though, you're really shallow. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's this weird mindset of like, I want to play, I want to play all the streets. I want to play, you know, five street poker and get to showdown and do all this stuff. But I want to do it at an SPR of like two. (laughs) <laughs> you know uh and i want to have the widest range imaginable what are you talking about we do that in mtts is like 10 percent flop 25 percent turn all in for 33 percent on river there you go yeah but you're doing it you're doing it heads up like the yeah. reason the spr is short is because your stack is short yeah uh, mm-hmm. i think largely in cash especially small stakes the reason the spr is, is low is because you went six ways to the floor right yeah. exactly mm-hmm. you know you're basically playing bomb pots every hand and so i think that a lot of the new trend that will emerge coming into 2024 the the way i see strategy moving in the cash realm specifically and this is something i want to put a big focus on itself for a while you know we had our quarterly meeting uh, a few days ago and I, I i really hammered home like i want to put an emphasis on the fact that we are a live poker training site first mm-hmm. and foremost right. like we want to gear ourselves towards yeah. what's happening in the wild and I think that online's dead, so you might as well go in that direction. <laughs> That's right. We did have a wonderful uh, panel discussion yesterday about the the current health of online, and that could be maybe the the topic of conversation that we wrap this pod on. But um, the direction that I see live moving is, and and this is largely always true. First and foremost, it's predicated around betting size. Uh, so bet sizing is always going to be the first mechanic that I think that you're going to see the field kind of go through its ebbs and flows with. Um, range construction obviously kind of coincides with that. So you'll see games shift tighter. And we saw this shift, I think, like right before the pandemic. I think live poker was at its absolute tightest point when it came to how to quote unquote correctly play the game, right? At that juncture, uh, late 2019, early 2020, pre-flop charts were just all the rage in poker in general, right? And it was getting to a point where it had leaked its way into live and everybody had their hands on an RFI chart. And, you know, the the notion of like high rake, nine-handed, yada, 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 people were opening 10% under the gun all of a sudden. And it's like, what a fucking bore. You know, we're playing two blind, 100 big blind poker, no ante, this is the worst. Post-pandemic, though, I think a lot of things started to open up. We saw a lot more three-blind games, three-blind games with antis. We saw the bomb pots get uh, instituted. We saw stand-up game rise in popularity. Um, the seven-deuce bounty is making its way all the way down to, like, 510. So there's a lot of, like, carnival tricks in there that make it impossible to really just, like, stick to a very strict, tight, pre-flop range and just execute, like, a precision. You know, the game's too slow. Mm-hmm. You'll die of old age before you actually realize all of your win rate this way. 
So I think what ultimately happens is people are like, okay, well, let's get back to what we know. Like, let's all have a good time. Let's play a little bingo. Let's see three. You know, if, if ever there's a, a, a slogan that live players can triumph, it's let's see three. You know, let's race to the flop and then figure it out from there kind of thing. So I think that we're back to the looser ranges pre. Yeah, there's more squeezing going on than there ever has been. Their three betting might become a little bit more in vogue. You might even see like more four bet responses than we have in the past. But largely speaking, we're still going to get to the flop. Whether it's heads up or multi-way, we're still going to see a lot more flops. And what I anticipate happening is we're going to continually shift closer and closer and closer to these smallish sizes. So I don't think that this has quite made its way into live yet, the B10, right? We haven't really seen the 10% mm -hmm. pot find its way into the live venue yet, but it's so worth exploring. Now the bomb pots are wildly popular. Um, you know, we, we've explored this a bit on Poker Out Loud. I think we have two, maybe three seasons where we play some bomb pots and the betting for one big blind is just so powerful because it forces a response from not just uncapped ranges, but unbounded ranges. You know, these, these are literally 100% ranges that have all seen the flop, and there's a lot of dead money out there. So forcing people into a response with what's mostly going to be marginal equity, uh, you're going to have eight other players at the table that are all on average going to have like, you know, 12.5% uh, pot share and like 25% equity with their exact holding. And now you're giving them a problem set of like, how do you deal with having more equity than your pot share, but also having to deal with seven other opponents that have something similar to deal with. Okay. Uh, I think that my anticipation is that, and I can say this a little bit about my game as well, the medium size has really fallen out of favor. Yeah. You know, the B50s are just like really useless unless the SPR has shrunk to like sub four. So like three bet pots, uh, occasionally four bet pots if you're like looking at GO2 type of stuff. You'll see a little bit more of the half pot. But if you go back in time, that was it, man. Half pot was the fucking size. It's funny. Yeah. I, I watched, it was just default to half pot. A, a while back, I, I went back to PokerGo and watched like some random episodes from like the 2013 main event or something like that. Every bet was half pot. Yeah. Like, it was like mm -hmm. half pot every street. Every street. Just like nothing other than that. It we, just was so and that's wild. What you we geosized yeah. back then. We just didn't get all in. Yeah. We just didn't know what geosizing was. <laughs> that's um, We that, same bet them. You'll, bet, you'll yeah. see that from what I would consider an unstudied player, mm -hmm. you know, in the field is that they, they just always half pot. Yep. Like mm -hmm. up, turn river, half yeah. pot, half pot, half pot. And every raise is three times the previous raise. Doesn't matter what mm -hmm. street. What size, like pre-flop, flop, out of position, in position, it's always 3x mm -hmm. and half pot. Like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I, I think like leaning on that sizing scheme, I, I think that we're going to see more gravitations towards the poles. We're going to see uh, more of the geometric sizing, perhaps. I, I actually hope not. Uh, I, I know we talk about it a lot and that may be to my disservice because I think it's a hack. Like, I think it's literally a, a live hack where it looks like you're just custom sizing all the time because people aren't that quick. They're not really able to to kind of decipher what the the geo two geo three sizings are, um, but I would imagine the more people study polarized ranges and polarized sizings, the more you're going to see these geometric sizings making their way in. Uh, I would also imagine that you're going to see overbets return to favor. So I think like during the pandemic, overbets became like it, man. Mm -hmm. Overbets like became such a wildly popular exploration of the game tree. I know that like uh, it's it's funny because it's 
it's mostly born out of geometric sizing, but 300% potting the turn just became like really cool to do in like 2021, 2022-ish. Um, not really realizing like it's not just a randomly chosen number. That's kind of like the upper bound of what Geo2 is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that might be like 10 SPR or some, maybe a little bit more like 12 SPR, something like that. Uh, and there are still going to be times where it's like, well, I have the fucking nuts on the turn and the SPR is really deep, but I want to be able to play for all of it. So I guess I'm just going to have to start with a ludicrous sizing <laughs> on this particular street. Um, and, you know, that's just that's kind of the nature of poker strategy in a nutshell. Your value is going to be what drives your strategic decisions. Uh, it's just a matter of like, how well can I build around that? You know, if I could legitimately, I, I know Negranu gave an example uh, a while back about like, how often do you need to call if you're $10 million effective and there's $1 in the pot yeah. and somebody goes all in? And it's like, you know, the short answer is like almost never. Right. Um, and that's true. The The larger the bet size, the more infrequent the call. But so long as you can find some semblance of balance of uh, proper bluff candidates to your value, you are going to want to apply a lot of pressure. And And the notion of, I think, you know, it's funny because like, obviously nobody's ever going to call me small bet Berkey. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I think that like what gets overlooked by me being a quote unquote big bet guy and I do. I, I love polar lines. I like going for egregious sizings that maybe haven't been quite as studied, uh, even if it means like breaking the sim a bit and opening four or five X pre in spots where that just doesn't occur. But you need to have finesse. And generally, the mirror of that is just going to have an extremely small size. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're going to have like the one size down. Like, oh, you know, Berkey, he either three X pots or pots it. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like not the way this whole thing functions. Right. It's uh, it's a lot more extreme than it's like. Potter min bet. Yeah, it's either like yeah. oh, he either bets one chip or all in. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I I think that's definitely becoming the way certain things are going. Like you see, I mean, it does happen in the, in the game tree quite a bit that you see spots where it, a range either wants to go polar or it wants to block. Basically, mm-hmm. that does happen a fair bit. But I see a lot of people kind of leaning that way, and I even I feel myself leaning that way sometimes, where I'm like, I'm either betting a really small size for like a block purpose or I'm going big because I'm going polar. And I, I do think those middle sizings, there are some spots where they do have a lot of merit, but it's, I think it's becoming the case that as soon as I see somebody either using a super small size or a super big size in a spot, I can be like, okay, that person's a wreck. And right. then as soon as I see someone using like a, a two thirds or like a half pot size or whatever, it's like, okay, that, that player's probably a wreck. So it's definitely becoming a bit of a divide now. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's definitely true. Um, I think that uh, playing off of that a little bit, I know you kind of wanted to talk a, a little about this. I'm sure it's going to happen in MTTs to some degree too, but the idea of uh, varying your, your preflop sizing, mm. we see this a lot in cash, and I think it's only going to become more popular specifically because of the stand-up game. Uh, there's a certain ICM, maybe that's not the right model to reference here, but there is a certain pressure that builds, which changes the EV of your decisions as you get closer and closer to heads up in the stand-up game. And whether you're looking at whenever everybody at the table is standing or uh, all the way down to like heads up in the stand-up game, there's a lot of incentive to just win the pot uncontested. And a byproduct of this is increased raise sizes. Uh, Another scenario where raise sizings tend to play a little bit bigger is when you start to 
hit unbridled territory that's you know largely unstudied thousand big blinds effective 1500 big blinds effective whatever there is uh, a certain art to kind of testing what someone's limits are as far as how they're going to respond to uh you know a, a 25 big blind three bet instead of the normal 12 whenever it's like small blind versus hijack type of thing mm -hmm. but you're infinitely deep so you know it doesn't even really serve you all that well to reopen the action for a smallish size mm -hmm. you just kind of create still a very large spr where you're not out of position with the onus to uh to, to potentially have to do something and i'm not even necessarily implying that larger is better there it's just more so that larger becomes a more viable option and i think people are in that exploration phase which that's what i think i'm most excited for moving forward this year is that i think we're reaching that that precipice of uh technology advancing and people um hitting some level of competency when it comes to theory but not necessarily to mechanics or precision mm -hmm. to where we've now just hit an exploration phase again. Yeah. People want to like test the waters. They want to do a bunch of shit. Uh, and then you have a lot of other people just mimicking it, yeah. you know, b betting 10% of the pot in a spot that's absolutely ludicrous or jamming all in for five X pot in a situation where it's impossible for them to arrive to bluffs, yeah. you know, that type of stuff where uh, now those who are putting in the work and keeping up with the trends are kind of able to see through this nonsense and just like capture a ton of EV. Yeah, it's it's. Oh, I took off my headphones because my battery died, but never mind. Um, <laughs> the uh, it, the really challenging and interesting thing comes when you see somebody that <clears throat> that you know is very technically studied and proficient, and they do something that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Because mm -hmm. uh, that's where it gets really interesting. I, I was playing with uh, with Phil Shing uh, the other day uh, at Venetian. He was to my direct right. He and I had just had a conversation about like what, what coaching content we were working on and stuff like that. And I, I know he's obviously a very good player, knows exactly what he's doing theoretically. And then uh, I'm in the small blind and I have like 50 bigs and he just 3.5 X is the button. And me, me and Ben, ben Ludlow are in the blinds like looking at each other like, did he just, what did he do? What did he just do? Right. You know, like uh, not knowing how to respond to a 3.5 X open from somebody who is normally very theoretically studied. And you know, I was thinking through it and thinking like, well, this could be something that he's doing because he's splitting his opening range. He could just be sizing up with his whole range. He could be sizing up with some hands exploitatively and then sizing down with others. Like there's a whole bunch of potential things that he could be doing. Yeah. But it's impossible for me to know which of those things he's actually trying to do. So it becomes a whole new game when you know that somebody knows the theory behind something and then they are deliberately choosing to disobey it. It's it's uncharted territory now. So yeah. it, was a, it was a fun spot to be in, but uh, Phil put me in some tough spots. Yeah, it becomes tricky to figure out what the response is, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, we can just follow some guidelines and say like, oh, this is larger than normal. So therefore I should be a pip or two tighter uh, than I normally would be or a pip or two uh, tighter from my passive range and maybe a pip wider from my aggressive range or, or whatever the case may be. Like... Uh, it always does come down to a math equation of how much am I risking mm -hmm. versus how much am I being rewarded whenever I follow through on whatever action it is I choose to take. Yeah, That gets really tricky. Uh, and I think that it's almost impossible to actually figure out in game. So I think, you know, generally speaking, whenever you're talking about people who are putting the work in and feel pretty confident about their game at the table, kind of just like executing what they know to be true and not worrying too much about the mechanical differential in then looking at it somewhere down the line is almost far better off 
you're you're almost certain to uh, perform better that way than trying to guess your way through a spot in real time. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Landon, you uh, you okay? You look like you're ready for. I'm, a I'm an online cash guy, man. I got nothing. We lost you. <laughs> <laughs> we, we lost. Well, we we definitely <laughs> lost Landon. <laughs> Landon, he's drowning. Landon's disappearing no. off the screen. <laughs> Oh. Goodbye, my lover. Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye, my friend. <laughs> God, being able wow. to drop that one was so good. Oh, oh what a callback! That's a callback. Uh, let's let's. I'm an online uh, guy, man. Huh? I'm an online cash oh, guy. That's man. perfect because we can wrap it on on that scenario. Uh, I did a panel yesterday with Pads, Matt Marinelli, uh, John Andreas. Um. Chris George and Rob Kuhn. So uh, the whole the whole gamut was covered. We have a guy in security in John Andreas, the leader of men in pads, uh, Matt Marinelli's the top winner in America as far as uh, we understand. Uh, <laughs> it's happening again. Um, then, <laughs> Having to me as well. Am I, you know, am I disappearing off screen now? Rob, Rob Kuhn is uh, an ambassador for ACR and uh, a pro over there. And then finally, Chris George, who's kind of like grinding his way through uh, the stakes and you know trying to adhere to the poker dream as we know it. Uh, so one of the big questions I ask them is like, is the dream still alive? And do you feel comfortable and confident having your money online? And I guess uh, you know I'll, I'll leave that as the final question for you guys to kind of chomp on, like what does 2024 online landscape look like to you? Uh, for me personally, it looks like a lot of regulated sites and I'm lucky to be able to play on WSOP.com. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where most of my action goes now. And mm -hmm. I feel good about it because it is regulated and then everything else is sort of a free for all. So yeah. are you going to put in much volume on like ACR Sundays? I don't think I'm put much volume on it, in on ACR or like GG or anything like that. Like I'm still going to go to scoop, like go to Vancouver for scoop and play on stars and, kind of keep things near as regulated as possible. Yeah. And I feel okay with that. Put most of my study into MTTs and playing more live. Mm -hmm. And I'm just completely okay with playing more live poker as a result. Yeah. I'm, I'm honestly in a very similar boat. I think that I, I don't see myself. I haven't played on ACR in like two years. I haven't played on GG in forever. I can't even remember. Um, I, I don't see myself playing on, on regulated sites and, uh, I, I don't know if I'll travel to go play online or anything like that, but I, I didn't put in a ton of online volume this last year and I'm definitely okay focusing on live poker for the time being. I, I'm not necessarily doom and gloom about online, but I definitely would prefer to play on regulated sites. So WSOP.com is fine for me for now. Yeah, I, I left the conversation um, a little bit more optimistic than I think I entered it. Um, one thing I understand to be abundantly clear is like regulation does help this cause a lot. Now it doesn't clean up everything. It doesn't make everything impossible. Obviously RTA and multi-accounting is still uh, an issue, but man, is it so much to a lesser degree? Like when we look at like what Ali and Jake and a few others were, were doing WSOP was like one of the least uh, targeted sites that they were going after as far as I understand it and a big part of that is that in order to multi-account you have to get actual other human beings to agree mm -hmm. to what you want them to do right like I know of a couple instances of multi-accounting having occurred on WSOP but it was literally like somebody having a stable and then having them on Skype calls yeah and telling them like no click this button click that button like basically manufacturing a human bot ring mm -hmm. right and that's a lot of hoops to jump through as opposed to like what ali was doing on some of these other sites that yeah. weren't nearly as secure 
So what I, I kind of understood and took away from this conversation, especially speaking to John, who is in security at WPT Global, was that um, it's not very incentivized for the gray and black market sites to do anything with KYC or know your customer protocols. But uh, having a very strong KYC protocol, which the regulated sites like WSOP absolutely have to, really makes their job a lot easier when it comes to security. And there are a lot of further steps that can be taken, which I really am hopeful that Stars US, BetMGM, um, and uh, you know Party, Party US, as, as well as WSOP start to adhere to. There's absolutely no real justifiable reason to continue to have online aliases. Mm -hmm. Like we should just be real name. It's it's so much better for not just the site and the optics. But for the ability for the community also then to comfortably trust the product that they're getting and the person that they're playing against. Putting names to faces is strong. It's really huge because now, uh, you know, we're able to scrape so much data just by playing in the, it, it, like, never have players been sharper, right? And that's abundantly clear. Talking to Matt and Pads, they're part of like a high stakes group collective where there's maybe 160 of them and they're constantly scrutinizing new screen names that pop up in the high stakes, uh, new winners that, you know, randomly appear, the countries that they're from, the consistencies, inconsistencies, the data, right? Like how close to a human versus a machine are they playing in certain nodes of the game tree? The fact that we're able to do this at, at, at the boots on the ground level, imagine what's available for security. So when you attach real names to that, not only does it solve the multi-accounting problem because... It's very challenging now to get your hands on a second account when it has to be a real human being. Mm -hmm. But secondarily, it does give the consumer a lot of confidence that either the person they're playing against is who they say they are or their playstyle does not consistently match with the person that they're up against, which now draws a red flag. Yeah. Right. Us being able to like cry wolf. And I, so that's that's the wrong analogy because, you know. <laughs> the whole thing is that the kid was lying. But us being able to report, I guess, uh, the the inconsistencies that we see in the environment with some level of confidence and some level of data to back it up is really massive in creating some cooperation between the players and uh, the, the operators alike, which I think all of our end goal is the same. It's to create a, a, a very safe online gaming environment where we can comfortably gamble for seven figures. And yeah, is that asking too much? In unregulated sites, if you just when like for example, on ACR when they used to have country reads, yep. you could look and see where people usernames and accounts were from and where they were created, like call it Uruguay, Uruguay, call it Montenegro, right? There's no actual name to the person, but if I was playing versus an account from Ukraine, I'd be like, oh, they're, they're probably pretty good. They're from Ukraine, mm -hmm. where you don't know if they're actually multiing or yeah. RTAing or whatever, but if you have a name to the face and then you say, okay, where did this guy come from? How often did they play poker and do some sort of background checks through the community and people you know, then it's like, does the gameplay match up with who they say they are? Yeah, right. it's it's very much a thing. And ACR taking away the country reads, like, <laughs> it just, it's such a shady thing. Like, I used to call down Brazil all day, baby. Yeah, but it's like, <laughs> it's such an obvious clue that like, why would they not want people to have this information other than because it makes it look like certain countries are suspicious, you know? There's no reason for ACR to keep that secret. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure what the what the reasoning behind that was. Uh, I don't know if it was a good one or not. But what I do know is that from the operator standpoint, so we gave all the cases here for why mm -hmm. regulation is good 
uh, strong KYCs are great, yada, yada, yada. From the operator's standpoint, you can look no further than party poker mm -hmm. and see how crushing and debilitating strong KYC protocols are, mm -hmm. right? They wanted to be regulated in the United States, so they wanted to be above board and they followed everything to the letter of the law. You can't get $2,500 deposited anymore. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to play on their platform in the rest of the world that all the high stakes just vanished. And that's the last thing you want as an operator. So striking some sort of balance where it's like you can still take cryptocurrency as as a, a deposit mechanism, but also like we want to use real names, so we need to be able to verify your identity. It's mm -hmm. really fucking hard. Yeah, it's and almost, it's at it, odds. It's almost like we would rather, <laughs> we, we prefer to know that you are you when you're playing as Correct. opposed to caring that much where your money comes from. Right. You know what I mean? Like we'll take your money as long as we know it's actually you playing the games. Right, the unfortunate uh, truth of it is that those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, of course. The yeah. easiest way to know your customer is to be able to verify where the funds are coming right. from. That's and, the problem. Uh, that is the biggest problem that I think online currently faces. Uh, I do have a little bit higher hope. I, I, I didn't. I knew that the high stakes, uh, uh, the high stakes community was very well organized. I didn't realize it was as deep as uh, Pads kind of alluded it to it being. Like I, I figured a couple dozen people you know, are playing nosebleeds or whatever. But when you throw in the tournament players and then you throw in guys that are playing like, you know, 1K NL and up, you start to get to a reasonably high collection of, you know, intelligent individuals that have made a career at this. And they are very well organized. Now, are they being listened to? That was another big point of discussion. Uh, I highly encourage everybody to go back and listen to it. I thought Matt Marinelli's take on this was really, really important. Uh, important enough that uh, you know we we put a clip of it out, um, but I think that like we are at a point where it's becoming more clear to operators that they need to move. Uh, it's not like it was ten years ago where there's just implicit trust and the money being made was so free that if we were getting raked over the coals, so be it. I think that was the the landscape of the app games as of like a year ago. But even they've become completely unbeatable across the board. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's like really winning at a high clip any longer. Yeah, like they're just rake back junkies. Don't play on apps, people. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I mean, you're you're just giving up infinite and the security protocols are 1%, 10% maybe max of yeah. what the worst I mean, gray site imagine is. Imagine how much cheating is going on on apps. Like just imagine. I mean, we saw that video of the of the setup with like three dozen phones hooked up yeah, to a bot. Yeah, I, I saw that. I, I had seen that before, like a long time ago. So I don't think that was like- Anything new. I don't think it was what people were pre presenting it as, but uh, yeah, it. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, in any event, I am hopeful uh, because I do think online is the lifeblood of poker as a whole. I think in order for live to continue to sustain and grow and see the influx of additional money that we've seen over the past few years, Online is, uh, it, it's a vehicle that transitions people over. You know, it's very low barrier of entry. You can jump on and play five cent, 10 cent if you're recreational, see if you like it, kind of get the feel of the game, get a bunch of hands in under your belt, and then go right. play your local one too. Uh, I think that's an important thing for us to, to, to maintain. Now, in my ideal world, would online exist the way that it currently does? Absolutely not. In mm -hmm. my ideal world, I think we would see it like cap out at 50 cent a dollar. Would see it cap out at like $11 MTTs. You know, and it would just be a breeding ground for wrecks, right? Like a place where it kind of like how fantasy sport, daily fantasy sports are, where the buy-ins are incredibly small and they just draw in the casual gambler. Um, but they lit the pros feast by having like, you know, endless amounts of entries. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually like they 
they, they took too much money out of the pool and they started capping the, the amount of entries mm-hmm. that you could have. So I, I kind of view online as a similar mechanism where it's like, it would be a fantastic place for satellites, for low barrier of entry, you know, micro stakes, one cent, two cent, all the way up to 50 cent a dollar, but a very difficult place to ha- uh, make viable livings. I saw, uh, I saw one Twitter guy, one of the, the faceless eggs on Twitter saying, uh, no more online poker. Get rid of all online poker. Yeah. Which I think is a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, I don't think you're quite in that camp just yet. No, no, not at all. But my fear is that if my version of the future came true, apps would just explode. Yeah. And I don't want that. That might be that, a problem. That's way worse than the current landscape is mm-hmm. if all of the money moved to apps. Uh, but that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We appreciate you. As always, don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe, leave a comment in the uh, comment box below. Let us know what you think the biggest trends are going to be for MTTs or cash games moving forward in 2024. Uh, I forgot Twitter Tuesday. I forgot it now again on Twitter Thursday. I swear to God, we're going to get to it tomorrow on Twitter Friday. Friday. That's right. Uh, it doesn't even, it's not even alliterated or anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. We lost the play on words here, but we are going to read your responses to what are your 2024 goals? Man, it would have been perfect for today. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. I believe it's me, the tortoise and Landon. Big shout out to Guapo. He's headed over to Thailand. He's left me in charge to run this show. So uh, God pray that we don't burn this thing to the ground before he gets back. I hope you enjoy yourself over there, young man. Missing Guapo and Conrad. We it's, are, it's a lot. We are short staffed. It's a lot to undertake. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, 11 a.m. Pacific. As always, be sure to tune in then. We'll see you guys all tomorrow. Peace. Peace.